0: as we get to the point. I want you to grab your Bible, and I want you to find the book of Hebrews chapter 7. I need to preach quickly today, uh, maybe a little bit too long in the first service, about 40 minutes, I guess. I've got Samba over here with a stopwatch, and so uh, he uh, he lets... I'll tell you a funny story. Uh, a Samba, after the service, we were talking about the length of the sermon and so forth, and and uh, I, I picked up my phone, and someone in the first service had texted me and said, you know, just go ahead and preach as long as you want to. How many of you know that just doesn't work, right? You, you got to keep a, a time on it, but I, I got to be honest with you, in this church, I just, in my spirit, I've been here 16 years now, in this church, I just feel this love for the Bible, this love for the Word of God. And so I enjoy studying and preparing and getting in the Scriptures, and when those two come together, you got to be careful about what time it is, all right? So I want you to go with me to Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 26. If you're a guest today, we've been in a journey verse by verse through the book of Hebrews. All of those sermons are online, and there's just a lot in there. It kind of builds on each one. We're in this section where the writer of Hebrews says, you know, there's more I want to teach you about, but you're just not mature enough. You're just, you're just not ready to receive uh, what you need to hear. He challenges them about maturing in Christ, and then he goes into this incredible section about Jesus being our high priest. I've simply entitled the message today, a question, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? The writer will show us in just a minute three things about who Jesus is. I was reading uh, this week and I did some listening about this, what is being called a born again phenomenon. Uh, The word is manifesting, manifesting. It's actually not a new word, it's a word that uh, I believe is just being repackaged into a different title. I'll show you in a minute how it kind of ties into what some of you have heard to be the power of positive thinking. Uh, If you're a guest today and you've never heard of that, let me pause and just say that we certainly are for positive thinking. Uh, But there's some implications of that statement that I'll tie together in just a minute. But this this new, what is called in the New York Times article this week, a a new born-again phenomenon is this word of manifesting. Now, what is manifesting? It is bringing into your life something through attraction. Uh, Let me put it this way. You you set your mind on something. You get focused on it. You get in touch with the universe, and then you actually bring it into your life. Uh, There's a lady, a writer for the New York Times. Her name Uh, is Ruth Laferia? She wrote an article on the 23rd of January about the power of positive thinking reborn, and it has a subtitle of, A New Generation is Manifesting in the Name of Wellness. And so there's a new generation, this new movement, if you will, even using words like the gospel of manifesting, being born again into manifesting, that is all about Thinking your way uh, into wellness. And in this article, there's a 35 year old New York designer uh, who talks about how he's all into manifesting. And, and he says in the article uh, the, the, the best illustration is when he was nine years old, he was sitting in his bedroom. I think I said he's 35 now. He's sitting in his bedroom at nine years old, and he's sitting there and he's thinking about how much he wanted a Power Ranger flip head. And he said, I'm sitting there, that's all I could think about, it was, it's all that was on my mind, and guess what, lo and behold, the next day, out of nowhere, his dad comes home with a Power Ranger flip head. And so he takes that little story to say that that is an illustration of thinking something into existence. As I'm reading the article, I'm certainly thinking, no, maybe your daddy just heard you talking about it, or you were bugging him with it, <laughs> you know? is uh, something that you really wanted to have. And so he went out and got it for you. But he tried to use that story to say that he manifested this thing uh, right into his life. And so this manifesting that is going on, it, it is it is a phenomenon among young people. Uh, teenagers in their 20s on into their 20s are getting into this. It's a growing thing. As a matter of fact, the article said that the goal of this is that this would be a common phenomenon in our country, that they would enlist and recruit more and more people who would join in with manifesting. Now, there are many, many different aspects of this, but I want to just for a minute say that this idea of manifesting, it has made its way into the church. It's also connected with Uh, what some say, connected with Christianity. And it made this appearance back in the 1950s in New York City at the Marble Church with a man uh, by the name of Norman Vincent Peale. He's the one that came out with this concept of the power of positive thinking. You will think your way into wellness. You will think your way into wealth. You will think your way into health. It was carried on by one of his Uh, disciples, if you will, by the name of of Robert Shuler at the Crystal Cathedral in California uh, over three or four decades, who uh, certainly is known as a power of positive thinking preacher. And in one of the books that he wrote entitled Self-Esteem, he made an interesting statement. He said, there needs to be a theological reformation in the church. And when I read that, I thought, man, I thought the Reformation happened 400 years ago uh, when Martin Luther nailed the 95 theses to the door of the church at Wittenberg. But Robert Schuller says there needs to be another, watch, there needs to be another Reformation of Christian thought because Orthodox biblical Christianity has erred. Let me read to you a quote from what he said. He said, it is precisely at this point In other words, at this point in time in the church, that classical theology has erred. All right? So he makes this bold statement uh, Orthodox, traditional, classical theology has erred. How has it erred? He said, in its insistence that theology be God centered and not man centered. Now, pause for just a minute and let's just briefly talk about that word theology. The word theology, theos, the first part of that word, theos is God. So theology is Godology. It is the study of God and how God interacts with man. Here we have a Christian teacher, a Christian preacher that says, no, what we need to do is we need to take God out of the center of theology and we need to replace him with us. He goes on to say the master plan of God is designed around the deepest needs of human beings, self-dignity, self-worth, and self-esteem. So in other words, in this line of teaching, in this new theology, it is better for us if we will get to know us than it is if we will get to know God. It's another form of manifesting. Now let me expand this just a little bit more And say that in the Christian church today or in Christian theology, I believe there is a manifesting that is going on that I will call the manifesting of Jesus. What do you mean by that, Pastor? I believe that there are some who close their eyes and they go off of their feelings and they go off of their thoughts and they create their own reality or they maybe create their own Jesus. They think their way. Into creating their own Jesus, a Jesus that is formed on maybe their own terms, a Jesus that often does not look like or match the Jesus of the Bible. Now, if you would think historically, when Jesus came to this earth, he was met with opposition, so much so that he went to a cross and he was crucified, right? He was rejected. John chapter 1 says, Jesus came unto his own, and his own received him not. They rejected him. There is still a rejection of Jesus going on today. I love what Martin Luther said. He said, if our gospel were received in peace, it would not be the true gospel. How many of you know today that what we know of Jesus and what we know of the gospel, that we do not receive it through meditation or manifesting, getting in touch with the universe. We understand and know Jesus and the gospel by what we see in the scriptures. Who is Jesus? Jesus does not say to exalt yourself or to build yourself up. Jesus says, if a man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. The goal of the Christian life is not to exalt Tim Coleman. The goal of my Christian life is to put Tim Coleman to death. My last verse is Galatians chapter 2 and verse number 20. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live, I live in the flesh by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. The Son of God, Jesus Christ our Lord. The Jesus that we read about here in Hebrews chapter 7. Now, as we think about this subject of who is Jesus, let's let the writer of Hebrews clarify for us even more about who Jesus is. Look in the text with me, and I want to show you three quick things, and I'll be done today, all right? The writer says three things about who Jesus is. Look in chapter 7 and verse number 26. The writer, first of all, says that Jesus is perfection. Jesus is perfection. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest. Again, we're in this section about Melchizedek and the order, the Levitical order, the Aaronic priesthood. The sacrifices at this time are still going on in the temple. Uh, there's still animals and, and, and bulls and goats and doves. And so these Jewish Christians are having a process. Uh, there's a high priest at the temple, but the writer here is saying that we have a better high priest that fits us, he is suited for us. And then he begins to describe the high priest. He is holy. That word there means he has inner purity. He is innocent. Jesus is blameless. He is free from evil. Uh, Jesus is unstained. He is pure. Uh, He is untainted by sin. There is no moral or legal pollution in his life. Jesus is separated from sinners. Now, the question there is, uh, to kind of twofold. Some would say that that phrase means that Jesus has already ascended back to heaven. We'll see that in chapter 8 in just a minute. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. So yes, he's separated from sinners in that he is in heaven, but most scholars believe that phrase means that Jesus, the God-man, he came to this earth and he took on human flesh. 100% man, 100% God. And in his flesh Hebrews earlier told us that he was tempted in all points like we are yet without what's the word yet without without sin. So Jesus was among us, he was with us, he lived with us, but how many of you know there was something different about him? He never gave in to sin. Jesus never sinned. He was blameless, he was separated from sinners. And then the fifth thing there, he describes him as being Exalted above the heavens and we'll see that in in chapter eight in just a minute. so Jesus verse 27 has no need. this is so good. don't just read this and pass over it. Church hear me today, our Savior and our Lord is not needy. he's not needy he has no needs. I would even remind you today that that he chooses us he chooses to use us but he doesn't need us. How many of you know we need him? We need him. Jesus has no need. Notice the next phrase, like those priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Now, notice that phrase there, the priest would offer sacrifices daily. Now, that phrase is somewhat problematic in that the high priest would only offer a sacrifice once a year on the Day of Atonement. It was the only time he would go into the Holy of Holies. Remember, it was so sacred and so holy, uh, they would literally tie a rope around his ankle because no one would go in there and get him. If he were to croak Or not make it out because it was such a special and a holy place, one day a year. So, what does this mean that they would sacrifice daily? Most scholars believe this, based off of history and the writing of some rabbinic writings, that the high priest would often go in and just make a sacrifice for himself. You know why? Because every high priest that has ever served in the tabernacle or in the temple, they were still men they were still flesh things. They were still sinners. And in order to do their job and be ready for the Holy of Holies in representing the people, they would make a sacrifice for themselves. They would offer a sacrifice, sometimes even on a daily basis. They would do it for their own sins, and then of course on the Day of Atonement, they would offer it for the sins of the people. But, but Jesus is different Jesus did this once and for all when he offered up himself. You see, Jesus did not offer a sacrifice. Jesus was the sacrifice. The Lamb of God, the Bible says, slain from the foundations of the world. Jesus did not come to lay a lamb or a dove or a bull or a goat or anything else on an altar for sacrifice. Jesus came and he gave himself as the sacrifice for our sins. Verse number 28, the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. In other words, every priest is a sinner. They're weak. But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. There's that word. Jesus is perfect. And I showed you last week how in Psalm 110 and verse number 4, that God swore over Adonai Jesus that he would be a priest forever. And he would not be just your average uh, fill-in-the-gap, we've got a new priest on our hands. No, this would be the priest who would be the priest forever. He would be the perfect priest forever. Jesus Christ is perfection. Now, you're sitting here today and saying, Tim, that's wonderful. We're learning about Jesus. He is perfection. Why is that important? Oh, friends, it is so important. I'll tell you why. Because God, our heavenly Father, demands righteousness. God is holy. God is just, and he demands righteousness. Jesus does not have righteousness. He is righteousness. So the Scripture teaches us that in our weak, sinful condition, that there's no way we can make it to the Father. There's no way we can approach the throne of grace. Romans chapter 5 and verse number 10 says that every man, woman, boy, and girl, young person on the face of the earth, we come into this world at enmity with God. We are separated from God. There's friction with God, and we can't approach God in our sinfulness. So, what do we need? We need righteousness. And the Bible says our righteousness is but as filthy rags. There's nothing you can do, there's nothing you can accomplish, there's not enough work that you can perform to make yourself good and make your way to the Father. That's why we need a perfect priest, a sinless priest. And you know what his name is? His name is not Aaron, his name is not Melchizedek. His name is, say it with me, Jesus Christ. He is perfection. Jesus is our righteousness. When you're born again by His grace, when you acknowledge that you're a sinner and you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you confess your sin as Lord, the Scripture says you are given, you are imputed with the righteousness of Christ. Jesus is perfection. Number two in verse number one of chapter eight Jesus is our priest. Jesus is our priest. Now, he says in verse number one, the point in saying all of this, and then he begins to give a summary. Now, I want to hit a pause button for just a second, and I want to remind you that the audience that receives this sermon, uh, Hebrews is considered a sermon. That's what it's called in its literature, in its format. Uh, Imagine a group of people like this getting together, and someone brings this sermon. Uh, who's in the audience? Well, everybody in the audience is a Jewish Christian. They have believed on Jesus as the Messiah. And, and with that, they have all of the history and their family. They have a practice from birth uh, until where they're at of, of the sacrificial system. Again, it's still going on in the temple. They've got family that, that have not believed on the Messiah, so they have pressure on them. And I think we need to pause for just a minute And kind of put ourselves in that room and talk about these Jewish Christians who have put their faith and trust in a Jewish Jesus. Now, I was uh, going through my library the other day and I was looking at the different books and and just uh, looking for titles that were related to Jesus and who Jesus is. And I came across this book I would highly recommend to you entitled The Forgotten Jesus, written by Pastor Robbie Galladay who pastors up in Nashville, Tennessee. And the subtitle is this, How Western Christians Should Follow an Eastern Rabbi. And in the first paragraph of the book, I'm not one uh, to uh, enjoy people reading to me. I'll just be honest with you. And so if you're that way, forgive me, but I'm going to read you the first paragraph of this book as he talks about the fact that Jesus was a Jew. Hear this. Jesus was a Jewish man who was raised in a Jewish culture. He was reared by exceptionally devout Jewish parents. He lived according to the Jewish laws. He was circumcised on the eighth day. He attended the synagogue on the Sabbath. Jesus participated in every biblical feast. He studied and he memorized the scriptures. He learned a trade from his father, and he began his rabbinic ministry at 30 years of age. All of this according to to Jewish customs at the time. At the age of 30, he chose 12 Jewish men to forsake everything and to come and follow him, to learn his teachings, to carry on his mission. Consequently, prior to Jesus' death, most of his followers were Jews who professed faith in Jesus as Messiah, but here it is, they still kept the festivals. They still worshiped in the temple and they still observed the Sabbath. If we look at Christianity today and compare it to how it began, we might notice that the Jewishness of both its founder and its original followers has been lost. I love that section because it reminds us of these Christians here in Hebrews chapter 8. Can you not sympathize with them a little bit? I mean, this has been ingrained in them, Uh, their, Their families have taught them this is the way it is. This is what God has told us to do. We need to be faithful to that. But now the writer here in this sermon says, wait a minute, you're thinking about a high priest that's over at the temple. Verse number one, now we have a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Now, what does the Bible say about Jesus? After he rose from the grave, The third day, 40 days later, he ascended back into heaven. And when he ascended back into heaven, what position did he assume? He sat down at the right hand of the Father. Now, this is so good, don't miss this. This Jewish audience knew that their high priest, or the one that was over at the temple offering sacrifice, they knew that the priest did not have a chair to sit down in at the temple because it was understood that the priest was always supposed to be working no breaks on the job for the high priest no time for you to sit down there's too much work to be done and so the writer here literally blows their minds by saying our high priest is sitting down now I want you to think about this how many of you are out in your yard and you mow your lawn and you and you trim it up, and you blow the sidewalks off, and you, and you get your flower bed weeded out, and, and you water your flowers. How many of you, on occasion, you'll go into the garage, and you'll get one of those really cool Coleman chairs? Y'all know what I'm talking about, the camping equipment? I have my name monogrammed on all my chairs. It says Coleman right there, right? So you go get one of those chairs, and you'll pop it open And you know what you'll do? Let's be honest. you got a little bit of pride in that moment. You'll sit down in that chair, and you'll just adore all of the wonderful work that you've done, right? You're just like, you know what? I'm going to sit down, and I'm just going to enjoy this moment because the work is finished. Now, don't miss this. There is a physical sense in which Jesus went to heaven, and he sat down by the Father And in that moment, it was a completion of what he uttered on the cross when he said, it is finished. The redemptive work is done. Father, I've gone and I've accomplished the work that you sent me to do, and now I'm seated beside you. But don't miss this. That doesn't mean that Jesus' work is done, because verse 2 says, now he is a minister in the holy places. He's in heaven, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Again, think Jewish, Christian. They know in the Old Testament there was a tent, and then there was a tabernacle, and now there's a temple. And the writer says the true tent is up there, and it's not built by man, it's built by God. Verse 3, for every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. We looked at that in chapter 5 and verse number 1 when the priest went in, uh, he had to have the sacrifice. He had to have the, the, the doves and the bulls and the goats uh, to offer before God. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now we're talking about Jesus, right? It's interesting that he doesn't unpack what Jesus has to offer here in this verse because he's really gonna unpack it in chapter nine and chapter 10. But let me pause for just a minute and say that Jesus did not offer a sacrifice. Jesus was the sacrifice, right? So Jesus offered himself. This makes, this makes him totally different from the other high priests. Verse number four, now if Jesus were on earth, he would not be a priest at all since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. If Jesus were on earth, he wouldn't be going, again, in your mind, temple's still intact, right? He's saying, if Jesus were here on earth, he wouldn't be over there right now in the Holy of Holies. He is the Holy of Holies. He wouldn't be over there offering a lamb. He is the lamb. He is the sacrifice. Verse number five, for they, they serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. That's a quote from Exodus 25 and verse number 40. Watch, as you're reading through your Bible, we started in Genesis this year. Man, we've read some great stories, haven't we? Uh, On through chapter 22 and Abraham, and and there's just so much there. I wanna encourage you once again, as you're reading your Bible, find Jesus on every page. Find Jesus on every page. His name may not be there. J-E-S-U-S may not be there, but friends, he is there. You know why? Because everything in the Old Testament, including the high priest and the sacrificial system, the writer here says, you know all of that, you experienced all of that, and it is but a shadow copy of the things that have come to pass. And now we have a high priest, Jesus, who is seated at the right hand of the Father. And what is he doing there? The Bible says that he is making intercession for you and for me. Now, Christian, I I want you to hear me today. This is so important. This is a, yes, this is a doctrinal message, and I've said it over the last few weeks. This is doctrine. This is not three ways to have a better day or seven ways to have victory. This is, this is like meat and potatoes, right? I mean, it, it says it right here in our Bible. We're fixing to get into stuff that I don't know that you're even ready for, So maybe if you're here today and you're bored with what we're talking about, the Holy Spirit would say, no, you don't need to be bored with that. Because what's the significance of having a high priest that is seated at the right hand of the Father? I'll tell you what it is. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16 says, Come boldly to the throne of grace, and there you will find mercy and help in the time of need. You see, if we could somehow wrap our minds around that we have somebody at the right hand of the Father that is cheering for us, that is interceding for us, that is pleading on our behalf. Maybe, just maybe, when the storms and the crud of life come our way, or when we sin and we mess up really bad, just maybe, maybe, we wouldn't run to a bottle or a pill or pornography or something else to try to deal with our struggles. But we would know where we need to run. (laughs) We would run to the throne, and we would know that Jesus is there Jesus is there. And he welcomes us to the throne. We are we are his children. And he cares and he's pleading and he's interceding on our behalf. Jesus is perfection. Jesus is our priest. But let me quickly finish by saying Jesus is our promise. Jesus is our promise. Verse number 6 says, "But now, but now as it is." He's saying this is the current reality. I know what you've done. I know how you've lived. I I know what you have practiced. I know what you have been taught, but you need to listen to me in this moment. This is the way it is now. Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. Now, can we pause for just a minute and just have a little bit of a a shout it down celebration fit for just a moment? Is there anybody in the room that would just pause with me and rejoice that we do not have to make a pilgrimage? I mean, come on, parents. These kids up here got ants in their pants and they're, you know, some of you parents are just worried sick that little Johnny or Susie wasn't going to stand still, right? I mean, can you imagine my mom is sitting over here. She lost me one time at Cape Canaveral when I was five years old, they lost me. And to their disappointment, they later found me. <laughs> Can you imagine the pilgrimages and your kids wandering off and where did they go? And oh my goodness, and all these people, and you got to have a lamb and you got to have a sacrifice. Where are we going to stay? What are we going to eat? And that day and time, where are we going to get water? Water was such a valuable commodity. You didn't know where you were going to get it from. You. You were were praying and begging God that you would find mercy from someone who would share water. And then you've got to go through all that sacrifice and and the pomp and circumstance of everything that happened. Is there anybody in the room today that we can just kind of exhale and say, thank God we don't have to do all that. You know why? Because we're not under the old covenant. I can eat shrimp. I don't have to sacrifice. You know why? Because Jesus came to mediate a better covenant. I want you to hear me for just a minute. We needed Jesus to mediate for us in our relationship with the Father. What does a mediator do? A mediator steps in into a dispute. A mediator steps into division, and he brings two parties together. And That's exactly what happened for me when I was 13 years old, when I realized that I was a sinner, that I was lost without Christ. And Jesus, by his grace and his mercy, he made my relationship with God the Father right. He mediates a better covenant. Do you remember? You remember when Jesus sat down with his disciples at that last supper? and he told him to take the cup, and he said, this is the what? This is the new covenant. This is the new covenant. Old things have passed away. It's a new day. This is the new covenant, and how is this covenant going to be enacted or made? It's going to be made through my blood that I'm going to shed on the cross. Now, you got to see here for the Jewish audience, beginning down there in verse 8 and following, he takes an Old Testament passage that they would have been familiar with and he brings it into the room. And he says, let me illustrate it for you. Verse number eight, he finds fault with them when he says, that phrase there means that mankind has disobeyed or mankind has broken the law. In some translation, it implies that the law wasn't perfect in that the law never completed the redemption story. And he points back to Jeremiah chapter 31. Let me read these verses really quick. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a, say it with me, a a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. Do you see yourself in that verse? If you don't, you should, because when we read about the children of Israel and their old covenant, they were absolute knuckleheads. They had all the promises of God. They had the faithfulness of God. God was faithful when they were fickle. God was faithful when they were disobedient, and and what God is saying there, he's saying, at times when they disobeyed me, I, I just let them suffer the consequences. Can anybody say either amen or owe me to that? Even though we have the new covenant, that doesn't mean we don't. The covenant's not broken, but it doesn't mean that we don't stray away. And God allows us to just get what we're asking for, right? Verse number 10, real quickly, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. Again, this is the new covenant in Jesus. I will put my laws into their minds and I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Have you read in the Old Testament where he says, I'm going to take out your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh? i, I got to remind you today, you don't have a good heart. You're not a good-hearted person. The Bible says your heart is cruddy. That's what the Bible says. The Bible says you are des- your heart is desperately wicked. Who can know it? You know what we need? We need a new heart. I was reading the other day about the first heart transplant that took place in Johannesburg, South Africa, and the doctor actually performed it on another doctor. And so, after it was completed a day or so later, he came to the doctor and he said, "Look, I've I've got your heart in a jar. If you want to see it, how many of you would have said no? Thank you in that moment." But this doctor said, you know, I, 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 I think I do. And So a day later, they came together. They went in this room, and the doctor handed him his heart there in this, uh, in this jar. And, and the story is that he stood there, and he just kind of thought about it for just a minute and contemplated it, and, and he asked uh, some questions about the procedure and what happened. And, and finally, uh, kind of a moment of silence, and, and then he said, so this is, my whole, this is my old heart that has caused me so much trouble so much trouble. How many of you can relate to that in your spiritual life, that <laughs> your heart's caused you so much trouble? Your heart is just, you've chased the things of this world, and God said, you know what? With my people, I'm going to give them a new covenant, and I'm going to put my word in their heart, and it's going to guide the way they live. Let me finish verse 11. They shall not teach one They shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord. Again, this is a picture of the Jewish community. This is not inclusive. It's not just us. It's not just our family. It's not my brother, not my neighbor. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. This could be Jesus' revelation at the millennial reign. It could be Jesus in eternity, or it could just be that The gospel goes out to the nations outside of the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And you and I need to celebrate today that salvation is not just for the Jew, but it's for the Gentile, because that's who you and I are today. Oh, praise God. Praise God that the gospel made it to us. Verse 12, you ought to shout a little bit. I will be merciful toward their iniquities. I will remember their sins no more. God says, I'm going to forgive their sins. I'm going to bring forgiveness. Anybody in the room today that has experienced the sweetness of forgiveness, to know that you've been forgiven. You've been forgiven from the penalty of sin, the bondage of sin. How did that happen? It didn't happen because you turned over a new leaf or decided to be a great person. It happened because Jesus came and made a new covenant with us. He died. He shed his blood so that we could be forgiven. Verse 13, and I'll finish. In speaking of this new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. What is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Man, that's such an interesting verse. Think about it. The word obsolete means becoming old. It's like some of us, right? The old co- it's becoming old. It's not, it's not valid. Uh, it, it's it's lost its position remember last week when i talked about christ and the law intersecting and then he makes this interesting phrase he says what's happening in front of you it's just about to vanish away now i need you to get this historically if the book of hebrews was written in the middle 60s let's say the year 65 they were only 5 years away from the ultimate destruction of the temple that has never been rebuilt. There has been no high priest, there has been no sacrifice, no blood, no bull, no goats, no doves since the year 70 when Rome invaded and wiped it off the map. So there's a prophetic word saying here, you better wake up, (laughs) you better wake up. Things are about to change you better get your eyes off of man and get your eyes on Jesus. And may I bring that word to the point, church, today that we too in 2021 need to get our eyes off of man and get our eyes on Jesus. We need to get our eyes off of our problems and get our eyes on the priest who is perfect. He's the fulfillment of the promise. What is the better promises that come with the new covenant? You know what it is. Our Lord and Savior is coming again. He's coming to this earth, and when He comes, He's not going to run to the temple for a time of sacrifice. Aren't you glad? Well, y'all sound real excited. When He comes, He is coming to be crowned the King of kings, And the Lord of Lords for all eternity. And every one of us that knows Jesus as Lord and Savior, we know him as the perfect priest, the fulfillment of the promise of God. For all eternity, we will gather around the throne of God and sing, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. Worthy, worthy is the Lamb. Who is Jesus? now hear me, parents, we need to pray over our children. We need to pray over our grandchildren that they wouldn't fall into the trap of manifesting their own Jesus, but that you and I would teach them the ways of the Lord, that we would teach them who Jesus is, that they would know Jesus so that when Jesus returns, they know beyond a shadow of a doubt it's not an uncertain sound. <laughs> they know that when that trumpet sounds, that our Jesus is coming to take us home for all eternity. And I say, even so, come, come, Lord Jesus. And all God's people said, let's pray together. Who is Jesus? If you were to